Matthew 19, uh, we're going to be examining this passage today, and it, we are going to deal with the theme of works and wealth. We're going to deal with uh, recognizing, first of all, who's given us what we have. Uh, in some ways, this goes along with the theme of thankfulness, but it's going to take it a step further as well. So Matthew chapter 19, if you uh, have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to turn there. And uh, follow along, we're starting in verse 13, and we're reading through the end of the chapter. Follow along in your Bible as I read. Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor, that you, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the, new, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Father, we ask that as we come into this text that you would give us the help that we need. God, we're entering into something that is far beyond my ability to even communicate without the help of your Holy Spirit teaching us. Teach us this morning as we look at your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to show you a picture this morning. This is a painting by George Frederick Watts. If we can show the picture here. There it is. George Frederick Watts painted this. It's called 
he went away sorrowful. Someone asked Watts, back in the day when he was working on this, someone asked him, what are you working on? And Watts explained, I am doing a man's back, he said. Little else but his back. To explain, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Watts then continued and he said, he said, fancy a man turning his back on Christ rather than give away his goods. He said, some people say his back looks sorry. I don't know, he said. It is what I meant to express. Ten of the saddest words in the Bible are found in verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. I don't know if G.F. Watts was intending to communicate a sorrowful back, but what he communicated is the most sorrowful image that you can imagine. Turning your back to Christ. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. I wonder this morning, are you facing Christ? Or do you've got your back to him? Who was he? He was a young man. That's about all we know. That would put him in somewhere in the category of 20 to 40 years old. He had stuff. He had a lot of stuff. He had many possessions. He was, he was wealthy. A young man, the young man, when he heard this, when he heard what? When he heard a call to abandon everything that he has and follow after Christ. He went away how? He went away sorrowful. Are you facing Christ this morning? Or is your back to Him? Jesus Christ is not merely a guru that you might follow, but He is Lord. The call to follow after Christ with all that you are is not an optional call, but it's a command. His kingdom is, is not one with a wide road leading toward it, but it's a narrow path. You see, the central issue in this passage and the central issue with this rich 
young man is an issue of works and wealth. It's an issue of works. Everybody say works. And everybody say wealth. It's an issue of works and it's an issue of wealth. And I want to talk to you today about works and wealth. And I want to do it under three different categories. First, I want to talk about the danger of works and wealth. Secondly, I want to talk about the abandonment of works and wealth. And thirdly, I want to talk about the right use of works and wealth. You tracking with me? Let's get into it. There's, there are, there are uh, three scenes here in this text. Before we get to the rich young man, there's a scene involving who? Children. Children come to Jesus in, in scene one. And we begin to build a platform which shows us the danger of works and wealth. By the way, I had a young man uh, say to me uh, about a year ago or so, he was trying to get into business and trying to get, earn some money, and he, he said this, and I quote, he said, I just want to have enough money so that I don't have to worry about anything in my life again. <laughs> oh, that's all? Because I thought you were just going to say you just wanted to buy some food for today. <laughs> no, he wants enough money. And how many of you are with him on this? Man, I would just love to hit the jackpot, play the lottery, build a business and sell it, maybe start one of these little apps that make you a million dollars, just so I don't have to worry about anything else ever again in my life. Who's signing up for that? Don't raise your hand. All right, it's a rhetorical question. I want to catch you later. The love of wealth. Is wealth, by the way, is it always a blessing or can wealth at times be a curse? We're going to look at that. But first, let's get to scene one. So scene one, we get to the kids. So these kids here come to Jesus in verse 13. Now at first, the children's scene seems unrelated to the rest of the passage. Until we dig a little closer, uh, look a little closer and dig a little deeper. And what we see is that the disciples have two responses. They respond to the kids in one way and they respond to the rich man in one way. What we see is that the people that Jesus rejects, the disciples accept. And the people that the disciples reject, Jesus actually accepts. So the little kids come to Jesus in verse 13, and they're right there it says that the disciples rebuked the people, meaning probably the parents, for allowing their kids to, to flock all around Jesus. And then if you look on into the next scene in verse 25, after Jesus turns away the rich man and lets the man walk away, it says the disciples were very astonished. You see, uh, in, in the Jewish understanding during this day, the rich were close to the kingdom. It was easy for a rich man to come into the kingdom. And at the same time, children were seen as second-class citizens. Humans for sure, but second-class. 
what we see is this, uh, what you could call an upside-down kingdom. Like Jesus takes all of our values in our kingdom, in our world, and he does this. Blop, drops it all on its head. Flips everything up. Turns it The things that we value, the things that I value, Jesus doesn't care. And the things that I tend to overlook, Jesus says, no, this is precious. We see these, this reversal of values that is taking place. We see it in verse 30 as, as he sums it all up. And he says, the first shall be last, and the last shall be what? First. Now, in this world, we, we, we have to recognize that we value the external things of life. We value what someone can bring to the table. And so in our world, as in theirs, we would tend to undervalue children because they bring very little to the table. We would tend to devalue them because children are needy and they are dependent. And we tend to then uplift and, and value the rich because the rich bring enough to the table to share and what they bring to the table is some really good food. The rich are self-sufficient. They're not asking anything of us. The rich are, in our day and historically, they are valued in society. But friends, listen, only Christ can bring us righteousness. Only Christ can bring us what we really need. As we go on, let's, let's pause there. Going on, the danger of riches, the danger of works. Another danger is that uh, riches and wealth can make this world feel like home. So after Jesus blesses the children in verse 15, it says he laid his hands on them, which is a sign of a blessing of God, all right? So he places his hand on these needy, snotty, runny nose, like little kids. The blessing of God. He turns now to scene two, this issue of the rich man And here in verse 16, the rich man comes to Jesus and he says what? He says, what good work must I do in order to have eternal life? Now let me ask you this question. This is a little theological pop quiz. Does this sound like works-based salvation or grace-based salvation? Works-based salvation. You see, the issue with the rich man wasn't money. It was a wrong view of salvation. He believed that he could work his way into the kingdom of God. And, and so he's coming to Jesus for one more deed, one more work, one more command. What is one thing that I can do? Give me, give me, give me a deed uh, that I can do in order to enter the kingdom of God. In verse 17, Jesus says, why, why are you asking me what's good. There is only one who is good, which by the way, he's, he's sort of subtly pointing the rich man to himself. 
There is only one who is good. There is only one whose deeds are are perfect enough to be called righteous. And it ain't you. There is only one, he says. And then Jesus, it's almost as if Jesus is, 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 is uh, playing with the guy a little bit. He's like, all right, let me give you some commandments. So you see there um, in verse Verse 18, he, he says, uh, You shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, uh, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, that, those commandments come from what list? We typically call them the Ten Commandments, correct. Does anybody know which of the Ten Commandments those are? There are five, six, seven, eight, and nine. All right, actually, six, seven, eight, nine, five. It's that order. Now, what's interesting about that? Well, those are the five commandments that deal with the external. The other commandments are purely internal heart issues, such as love the Lord your God. Have no other gods before you. So Jesus doesn't even yet refer to the internal commandments. He just refers to these external commandments. Uh, neighborly sort of commandments, which uh, is pointing, I believe, the rich man back to his Sermon on the Mount, which he shows us that even these external things you, you don't do. For instance, you don't murder, but you hated your brother. Yet at this point, he's, he's, he's putting these commandments out there, probably the commandments I think that this man focuses on. I don't do any of these things, and I do externally these other things. This, this rich man was self-righteous. And we see his self-righteousness as he says, uh, I've done all that stuff. Man, Jesus was so patient. Montreal would be laughing at this guy right in his face. I'm not saying you're not patient, brother. You've done all these things? You've got to be kidding me. You've done all these things. Seriously. You've kept half of the law. And, and, and so Jesus tests him. He, he just goes on. And he, and he gets right to the man's heart. And he says, all right, all right, all right. So if you think you have done all of these things... You think that you have loved your neighbor as yourself perfectly. Let's test it. Let's check it out. And so then Jesus directs him. And he says to the man in verse 21, he says, Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And then come follow me. Those two imperatives come together. It's not come follow me and don't worry about the other. It's not do the other and don't worry about following me. But they go together. He says, abandon everything that you have. All of this stuff that you're clinging onto in life. Abandon it. Let it go. Give it away. And then come after me. And the ten saddest words in the Bible follow. The young man walked away uh, sorrowfully. 
He has an issue of works in that he comes to Jesus wealthy with not just money, but he comes first wealthy with good works, wealthy with his own righteousness. And he's also, we see, clinging to his comforts here. This man's problem is not just money. It's an external focus of all of life. It's self-righteousness. It's self-comfort. And Jesus then lets the man turn his back to him and walk away. We can understand, by the way, why the disciples are greatly astonished because they could have used some of that money, right? You're going to let him walk away. Like, we need that. Like, we're poor. He we could have benefited someone. No. He lets him walk away. Let's pause for just a moment and talk about wealth. Wealth is not sinful. It's not inherently evil, but wealth is dangerous. Wealth is very dangerous as wealth tempts us to trust in what we have in a way that is incompatible with our faith in Jesus Christ. Have you guys ever looked at someone who's getting wealthy, who's making it and envied them? Have you ever thought of this reality that, that God might actually allow someone to succeed in life and make it and get famous and get wealthy and whatever that means for you as a curse, as judgment against that individual. Romans 1, turning them over to their gods. Oh, if, if money is your God, if all you want in life is to be wealthy, friends, I am concerned because God might give that to you. As judgment against you. And allow you to turn your back on Him as you trust in the things of this world. Money is neutral. Money is neither good nor wicked. But wealth is dangerous. And the young man walks away. Jesus says in verse 24, these sobering words, he says, he says, uh, again, I tell you, it's, it, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Back into verse 23, I, I say to you, it's only with difficulty a rich person will enter the kingdom of God. How difficult is it for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? It's funny, Jesus first starts out by saying it's with difficulty, and then he shows us how difficult it actually is. It's like taking a camel and putting him through the eye of a needle. And some have tried to explain that away, talking about various gates that were called needle gates, but none of that existed during Jesus' life. I think Jesus was actually talking about a needle and a camel. Like, have you ever tried taking a camel and putting it through the point of a needle? Or maybe you could say, maybe the little loop where the thread goes, that's a little larger. Maybe that's what he was referring to. Try to get the camel through that. Jesus, what he's saying, listen, I just want you to sit with this for just a moment. Jesus is saying it's impossible for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. 
It's impossible. Now pause, all right? Before you jump to any other conclusions, just sit with Jesus for a moment. Secondly, the abandonment of works and wealth. So first we see the danger of works and wealth. Secondly, we see the abandonment of works and wealth. You guys ever pay attention to some of the song lyrics that we sing? Like some of those lyrics we sing, I'll be singing them, and I'm like, whoa, that's actually really big. This is like me declaring that I'm walking away from everything. And we're all singing it together, all kumbaya-ish. Smiles on our faces, yay. Let me give you an example. Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be, perish every fond ambition. All I've sought for or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. Let the world despise and leave me. They've left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them untrue. And while thou shalt smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends disown me. Show thy face and all is bright. Listen to this. Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Leave, get away. Come, disaster, scorn, and pain. For in thy service pain is pleasure, and with thy favor loss is gain. I have called thee, Abba, Father. I have set thee, my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good to me. Number one, salvation is of the Lord. As we abandon our works and wealth, we must understand these two things that the rich man did not know. Number one, salvation is of the Lord. And number two, salvation is worth losing everything. Look at verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they're greatly astonished. And they're saying, who then can be saved? Because they get it. They understand that you can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. And so their, their response is, wait a second. If this is true, who then can be saved? Listen, I want you to understand this. Wealthy in the Bible is a nickname for everybody that's unsaved. Meaning, you can't just simply look at your bank account and say, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not wealthy. No, wealthy in the Bible is much more than just simply money. But we come wealthy with our good works. We come wealthy before God with our own righteousness. You know, I often ask people that old question that you may have heard years ago. If you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? It's always interesting to hear people's responses because that's where you see people come out with their wealth. Not necessarily their money, but their good deeds, their prayers, their, their church going, their love for the poor, their social justice, whatever that might be, we come wealthy. No, we cannot come 
wealthy before God. We come to God naked with absolutely nothing. And so when the disciples ask this question, who then can be saved? They understand that Jesus is actually referring to every single one of us. It's impossible for us to come to God into the kingdom with our own wealth of righteousness. Jesus then answers them in verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Listen, this is the key verse for all of our salvation. How is it that you're saved? How is it that you're saved? Well, it's because I did this, or it's because I brought this, or I had this to offer. No. No, it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God built on God's own omnipotence. Meaning, He is all-powerful. God is so powerful that He can save sinners. How is it possible? How can anybody be saved, the disciples ask? Oh, with God, it's impossible. I'm sorry, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So, you're a Christian because you picked yourself up by your bootstraps? You're a Christian because you brought the right thing to the table? You're a Christian because you prayed a prayer when you were eight? Think about it. It's not because of anything we've done. But it's based on God's power. By divine power, God can save the most sinful person in this room. By divine power, God can save the most self-righteous person in this room. And by divine power, God can even save the rich man. Jesus is not saying it's impossible. It's only impossible if we think it's up to us. But with God, all things are what? All things are possible. Do you believe that? Are you sure? Because the looks I'm getting right now, I'm not sure if you believe that. Do you believe that God saved you by His own divine power? Amen. Amen. That is my hope. That's all I've got. That is your hope. Listen, I have high hopes for some of you. Because God saves by His own power, not by yours. Why is it that I believe I have some family members who not, are not Christians? Why is it that I'm still praying for their conversions? Because I don't believe that they will be saved on their own power. If it's up to their own strength and their own power, it's, it's hopeless. But I have high hopes for the conversion of the most lost soul because God saves by His own power. And so then, therefore, we come to Him abandoning all of our works and all of our wealth, and we come to Christ alone. I would say this. The main point of this entire text is right here. Listen to this. Salvation is a free gift devoid of human merit. 
when we look at the kids and them coming to Jesus, and Jesus says, oh, it's, it's to these kind, for, for to, to such belong the kingdom. He's not saying that every child is saved. He's saying it's these kind of people. It's these kind of people who come to me with open arms. You know, I love it when I walk into Utah Marshburn Elementary, volunteered in the cafeteria with a couple guys in the church this last week. And as I walk in, like kids flock to me, right? And they flock to all the guys that walk in the room and big hugs. You don't get that when you're just walking down the street. Right? But you get that with kids. It's this, this is what I'm talking about, Jesus says. They know that they're needy. They know that they need you. They know that they, they, they crave your love and they just come to you and run to you. Oh, but then the rich man comes along. What can I do to earn? No. So as we abandon our wealth, what we must know is that salvation is of the Lord. And secondly, salvation is worth losing everything. It's worth it. Look at verse 27. Verse 27, Peter, in reply, he says, well, we've left everything to follow you. What then will we have? Like we see this contrast between the disciples' sacrifice and the rich man's rejection. The disciples are people who have dropped their nets and they've followed Christ with all that they are. And Jesus explains to them in verse 28 there's a new world that's coming. There's a new world, he says. And there are in this world, there's thrones. When the Son of Man comes and will sit on his glorious throne, and then he talks about these 12 thrones, and they're going to sit on these 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. I think that a lot of that is imagery to just lift up and show us the great value of abandoning this world and following after Christ. What he's saying is, is that you will inherit everything. You will become rulers. You will judge with me. You will live with me in this new world that is to come. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride beautifully adorned for her husband. And I heard from the, loud, from the throne a loud voice which said, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with people. And I will be my God and they shall be my people. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
salvation is worth losing everything for? What would you trade for eternal life? When you consider the reality of the kingdom of God that is to come, and then you place your life into that spectrum, how big is your life in this world? It's quite small, isn't it? What could this world offer you that Jesus cannot offer? What are you clinging to and hoping in and focusing on in this world? Verse 29, Jesus gives a promise. He says, everybody who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus said, good things are coming your way. In the Gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus actually said there a hundredfold today, not just referring to eternity. But those who leave it all behind now, he says, you'll receive, he expounds it, Mark, he says, you'll receive a hundred moms. Now, of course, we don't believe that that's literal. Not every Christian has a hundred mothers, right? This is a figurative promise. I don't think he's actually saying dollar for dollar you're going to get a hundred. But what he's saying is this, is that the Christian has actually in this world more joy and a better quality of life, true quality, not just when it comes to material things, in this world than the Hollywood star who has a penthouse in New York City. Like your life as a Christian living your life right now in Baltimore City, you have more joy now than they have when their wine abounds. Oh, and eternal life. The hope of the resurrection with Jesus Christ. Life forever with God. The, the rewards of Christ are not worth even comparing to what this world can offer you. And the rich man walked away. Let me just give you four points of application. Four quick points of application. As we consider, this is under the heading, the right use of works and wealth. The right use of works and wealth. By the way, I just recently read a story of a family who, middle-class family, he was a business owner, and he made $50,000 a year uh, through his business. As a family, they began to pray that God would allow them to give away $50,000 every year. He made $50,000. I want to give away $50,000. The next year that he worked hard, he was able to make some good business moves, his business grew, and that next year he gave away $50,000. Every year following, he gave away $50,000 as a family. They gave it away. And within a couple years, they had given away a million dollars. A middle-class family. What is the right use of works and wealth? That's what I want to talk about. Four applications from this text as we think about how to rightly use our good works and our wealth. A few applications. Number one, this should not be applied meaning sell everything, give it to the poor, this should not be applied literally as a command for every Christian. 
Meaning, the disciples, many of them still had their boats. They still had trades. Many of them had homes. Jesus was followed by wealthy women who supported them out of, out of their wealth. In the New Testament, we see uh, Lydia, for example, who had a house big enough to host the entire church. So this isn't a sort of a legalistic, kind of uh, moralistic sort of application that I must do this thing. Secondly, this is also not a call to poverty. It's not a call to poverty. This isn't, doesn't mean that tomorrow you should go into your work and say, quit my job. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm dropping this net. <laughs> no. I think it's a misunderstanding, all right, of, of, of this text. This isn't a call to poverty. As a matter of fact, I want lots of Christians to have lots of really good jobs that pay you lots of money. Why? It's because a Christian is somebody who says, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And the resources, the things I have in this world are to be used to bless and serve others. To put people on missions trips. To, to promote the healthy churches. Uh, to, to, to relieve the poor. This isn't a call to poverty. Thirdly, though, listen to this. It is, however, a call to abandon everything you have for Christ. This is a call for you to abandon all that you have for Christ. One theologian put it this way. He said, look, if you are relieved by the fact that this is not a command for all Christians, you just might be the person that God's calling to give away all that you have to the poor. Meaning, this is a call to abandon all that you place your comfort in and follow Christ. And for some of us, honestly, there is a money factor here. We've got to understand, as Americans, all of us are like some of the wealthiest people in the entire globe. Right? As Americans, we are so tempted to put our hope and our trust in our wealth, in our stuff. And then the bank account gets a little low, and you don't know exactly where the money's going to come from, and you start freaking out and getting depressed. Where are you placing your hope? Now, for many of us, it might not even be money. Money might not be your, your God, but you might place your hope in, in other things. We place our hope in our own comforts. We place our hope in in our friends, our, our children, our dreams, our careers, our aspirations, our plans, our ideas, our good deeds, our social justice, our love for the poor, our businesses, our churches, our parents. What do you place your hope in? And what does it mean to walk away? What does it mean for you to abandon all and face Christ as you are? You know what I think most of us tend to put our hope in? Our good works. Our works of righteousness. What does it look like to let go of your works of righteousness and come to Christ naked, exposed, dirty sinner that you are? 
not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. You know, that was written by another rich young man. He was a ruler in Rome. He was wealthy. He had status. He had importance. He had it all. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had a lot of good works. And he came face to face with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. It knocked him down. Scales fell from his eyes as he began to see his sin was placed on to Christ. My shame and my guilt was placed onto his shoulders on the cross. And he died for me. Three days later, he rose from the dead victoriously. And if he rose from the dead, then what does that mean for me as well? Oh, this rich young man left it all behind. He left everything behind. He gave his entire life to the glory of God. He helped to start churches. He instructed, he discipled, he wrote letters. He was whipped, he was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was thrown into a Roman prison. And under Emperor Nero, he was beheaded. He lost it all, but it was worth it. It was worth it. He was part of the beginning of what is the largest movement that's ever swept this world. He had more joy in his life in prison than they have when their wine abounds. And friends, 2,000 years later, bright shining as the sun, he still has no less days to sing his praise than when he first began. The Apostle Paul goes on, and I wonder if you agree with him. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Listen, since salvation is of the Lord. We use our works and our wealth for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would help us as we seek to do just that. As we seek to use all that You've given us, all that we have, for Your honor, for Your glory, that we might trust in none of it but trust in only Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.